Good morning. <clears throat> and thanks to the worship team, uh, the music. Some of those tunes are very catchy, aren't they? Some people even clapping hands in the back. And that's, that's kind of how the way music works. We have uh, a new helper in our house. Uh, she helps with uh, little things here and there. Her name is Alexa. And uh, like yesterday morning, I was downstairs, and I heard my wife get up, walk across the house in the kitchen, and she was going to work in the kitchen. She says, Alexa, play Sons of Korah. And so Alexa just chimes in and starts playing these, these hymns, these psalms that we enjoy. And if you're not familiar, some of you obviously are, but Alexa will help you do math problems and tell you the weather and things like that. Over the Christmas break... Uh, most, if not all, of our kids were home at various points, and they enjoy playing or using Alexa in different ways, especially with the music. That's what she does the most. And so they asked Alexa to play some songs uh, by Billy Joel. Well, maybe not very many of you were raised in the 80s, but that's when Billy Joel was doing his thing. And they played this song, and it got in my head. It hadn't been in my head for decades, but it had been in my head, evidently, and I couldn't get rid of it. It haunted me throughout the day when I went to bed, when I woke up the next morning. I couldn't get rid of it. I finally had to be the unreasonable ogre and say, no more Billy Joel. I mean, don't ask that thing to play it. It just haunted me, and they were considerate enough to to oblige. But music works that way. Music is a fantastic way of packaging truth. Truth that we want to remember, that we need to remember. And, and God knows that. In fact, I, I wonder if he didn't just design us to sing. Not that we would all be performers, but really that we would, that we would sing. That song would have uh, an important part in our lives. Then the psalmist in uh, Psalm 40 say, uh, The Lord has put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. And so here we see just in that one verse, song leading to evangelism. Songs. There are many songs and lyrics in the scriptures. Let's, let's take a little look at how some of this can work. It makes us remember things. In fact, thank you, Dan, um, Darren, for that Psalm 111. Verse 4, he caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And that had been put to music. That's how it works. Let's turn to page 1. In your pew Bible, at least. Page 1, Genesis 1. <clears throat> some of you may be using your phone or some app. I'm waiting for them to create an app that has this, this sort of a sound that makes a little crinkle of the pages, you know? <laughs> Just like the, the te- we have to have a telephone on our phone, and a, a, I mean a, a photograph, and it makes a little ka-ching. And so we need the same thing for the Bible apps. Genesis 1, many of you are familiar with this. It's the story of creation. We have the six days. And at the end of the six days, there's, there's a little verse. I mean, not a verse of Scripture, a verse of a song. And it's 
God celebrating. It's down in verse 27. Uh, many of your Bibles will have the, the it oriented differently, so you see it's sort of a poem. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female, he created them. It's a, it's a small song. And it celebrates and synthesizes and summarizes what has gone before. And then there's a little summary after there, and then that's the end of chapter 1. Page 2. We have a, another description of creation. A little different order, a little different purpose. And we get the verse 23 near the end of the chapter. And here the, the crown of creation is man. And man is asked to name all the animals, all these things. And he's, he can't find anything just right for him. And now he gets his wife. And he's excited. Rightly so. And he has this little song. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And then there's a little summary. So here's a little song synthesizing and summarizing chapter 2. Chapter 3, things go really poorly. We have the fall. And so at the end of this, there's another song. It's a bit longer. And it's actually the curse. The curse on the serpent. The curse on the woman and the curse on the man. And then a little summary from verse 20 on to the end. Are you tracking with this? is embodying song. And it's used that way. Let's look at one more. Chapter, page 4. Cain and Abel. Things go really bad. And Cain murders his brother Abel. Cain has uh, children, grandchildren. One of his great-grandchildren is Lamech. Lamech is a brutal bully of a person. At the end of this section, it's in verse 23. Lamech says to his wives, and here there's a little song. It's actually like a gangster rap. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Not all songs are good. I'm not talking about quality. <laughs> talking about content. This guy was nasty bad. And he's celebrating his own uh, advantage. And he, he goes on to, he's the one that takes multiple wives and so forth. So, but again, it synthesizes and summarizes what has gone on before in a bit of a song to be remembered. Well, there's a song at the very end of uh, the Pentateuch, the five books. And that's on page 173. Now, Deuteronomy is a really important book. Um, it's the fifth of the five books of uh, Moses. In Genesis, we have the creation. We have, uh, of course, Adam and Eve. And then we have the beginning of Abraham, who has a covenant, and then Isaac and Jacob, who becomes Israel and the great nation. And then Exodus. This nation is in bondage. 
and they get delivered from bondage, and yet they're an unholy people, how they approach a holy God, they would do with Leviticus. And that's all given in the, in the midst of, of Exodus. And then there's Numbers, where these people who are wandering in a desert because they're, they're rascals, and it takes 40 years before they can get to the promised land. So Deuteronomy takes place just before they enter the promised land. Why do they need this? Well, Moses is going to die before they can enter the land. And much of this generation, they've been poorly taught. They're not circumcising. They're being unfaithful to the Lord. They haven't been taught the law. And so Deuteronomy is essentially a very long sermon to the people before they can enter the land. If they're going to have any success at all, they have to relate to God properly. They have to know this. And so Deuteronomy is a, is a book that really becomes pivotal uh, through the rest of Scripture. The prophets and everyone look back to Deuteronomy. The Lord Jesus, when he was tempted in the desert, he quotes Deuteronomy three times. The Shema is in Deuteronomy. Uh, the very passage we will read is cited uh, 21 times in the New Testament. Just as one chapter. So it's a major, important book. We get to the end of it. In chapter 32, there is a song. And it is summarizing and, and synthesizing the whole of, of Deuteronomy. And so if you're familiar with Deuteronomy, this will click with you. If you're not, then if you understand what this song is all about, it'll help you understand all of Deuteronomy, which is summarizing all of the law. So what's so important that would be in this, this song? Let's get the context. We'll just let uh, Moses give it to us. We'll back up to chapter 31, and let's read verses 19 through 22, page 173 in a pew Bible. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. What is this song about? Before we look at the song itself, let's turn to verse 44 of chapter 32. Let's pass over the song. Verse 44 says, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. 
And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So evidently, the people of Israel are going to need this song. And like Billy Joel, it's going to need to just be haunting them all day and night. When they rise up, when they lay down, when they walk in the way. And this song, the message of this song, is that the God of Israel remains faithful even when his people do not. God is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. So this is a song we're going to look at, and a song is poetry. It's going to be Hebrew poetry. So don't expect everything to rhyme. Don't expect it to flow just like you would think of, of some of our Western poetry would. But look for this, the, the flow of ideas. That much will become clear. A lot of metaphor, a lot of parallel thoughts, and some imagery, lots of imagery. Don't even make sense to us today. We'll have to unpack those as they were significant to them. And we may even have to put on a little geologist hat because it talks about a rock in many different ways. So let's look at the song. It begins, uh, Psalm, verse 30 of chapter 31 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Moses wants to be, Moses wants to be heard. He wants people to listen. May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. His purpose, he wants his teaching to be helpful. He wants his teaching to help these people to flourish in the land, that they might grow. Gentle and tender. Verse 3, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. He opens up with doxology. He has a very high view of God's revelation, and we should too. His teaching is, starts out with a proclamation in this way. Verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I think you can kind of sense some of the poetry coming through. And the rock here is, to them, the rock uh, represents a mountain peak, a very rocky place, a place where it would be very safe, a place of refuge. And he's referring to the Lord as this rock. Some of the translations will give it a capital R even to, to help us. 
And it's parallel with the God of faithfulness, so it's pretty easy to understand. He's faithful, and he's without iniquity, just and upright. This is the God that the Israelite people need to understand when they go into the land. Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. So we were just talking about the Lord. Now we're talking about the people. This is a summary of the whole song in the first few verses. They have dealt corruptly with him, the rock. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. The Lord is justice and they are corrupt. He is just and upright. They are crooked and twisted. He is without iniquity and they are blemished. Right up front we understand who God is and what the people are like. These are fundamentals. And so in verse 5, we have they, they, they. It's a description in the third person. But we get to verse 6, and this is a finger pointing. It's an indictment. You. Do you thus repay the Lord? You foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So we set up who God is and who the people are, and we're seeing a, a, a huge disconnect. These people have a covenant. He's promised to take care of them. They've promised to obey. And it's not happening. And they've repaid him. They've responded in this way. Is he not your father? We we typically think of a father as a very New Testament type of description of, of the Lord. And here's one example where he actually is revealed. Children have a father. And, and here it is. But it's very rhetorical and like it's unbelievable. How could you possibly repay the Lord in this way? And so the song will go on with sort of a, a, a nostalgic, not nostalgic, but remembering the past. A reflection. So in verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. Well, what would they remember if they, if they did ask? Verse 8. Remember when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance? When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So when the people were, were growing and, and spreading out over the earth, they got land essentially based on how, many, how big they were. And the various cultures of the time looked at various deities, giving them credit for this sort of a thing. But the Lord's portion is his people. It's not based on their number. It's not based on their worth. He just chose them. He selected them. They were special to him, and that's, the, that's it. He adopted them in that way, and that made them his portion. So the nations got an allotment, but the one nation was God's allotment. It's just a whole different category. They're so special to him. Verse 10, remember... 
he found him in the desert and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Not only had he chosen them, but he he cares for them in a very intense way. Could, uh, we always, uh, the apple of the eye, this is an expression that uh, means something very special. The apple of the eye, it's the, it's the center of the eye. If, uh, hey, hey, David. David? Come here. Help me demonstrate something here. Don't be nervous. Okay. I'm going to stick this in your eye, okay? Are you ready? <laughs> no? You didn't like this. What? You're going you're gonna to protect your eye? Uh, yeah. yeah. We all would. God is saying he's going to protect Israel like you protect your eye. And that, we can't even help it. I was working out at the gym one day, and I was perspiring, and I came off my brow onto my eyelash, and it dropped into my eye. And you thought I heard a gunshot. I didn't, couldn't help it. But that's how God is so automatically going to protect his people. He's that devoted. He's keeping his covenant. He's faithful. Like the apple of the eye. He cares for these people. They're in a desert land. He's taken care of them. Remember, verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, it flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. There's debate about whether it's actually the eagle, but there was some flying creature that would treat its young this way, care for it. Watch out for it. Give it guidance. It was there for the first launch, the flight. Catch it when it fell. And this is the way the Lord is with Israel. He doesn't even need helpers. God alone is doing this. No foreign gods. Remember the provision and the enjoyment that Israel had. This is in verse 13. Remember him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, meaning the good fruitful land. And he ate the produce of the land, of the field. And he suckled him with honey out of the rock. Speaking of bees and honeybees. And oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd. That does sound good. That's menu worthy right there. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made with the blood of the grape. Are you catching this? This is lavish provision. This can't get better. This is the finest menu. This is cloth napkin all the way. He's caring for them and they're enjoying this This provision, God has so taken care of them, they get the best. And for verse 15, verse 15 starts with but. But Jeshurun grew fat. 
and kicked. Now, Jeshurun is a, is a proper name. It's sort of a, uh, an affectation, uh, a complementary term that God is using uh, towards Israel. It, it has a word that means upright ones, but they're not being upright. And so it has a way of speaking about them in a positive light, even though they don't deserve it. And if they did, it's only because he's helped them. Like, um, like if I were to finish a puzzle with someone, which is hard for me to do, and I got credit, I said, good job for finishing the puzzle, Willie. You know, only because I got a lot of help, because I don't finish puzzles. And so this is how he's being referring to them. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked and grew, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who took him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Further description. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to gods that had come recently. Latest fad, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And here again, we see the they, they, they turn to a you. Here's the indictment. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. It's not hard to stop here and apply it to ourselves. Are we growing fat? And I don't mean the, the waistline after the holidays. Growing fat in our relationship with the Lord. We've, we've been blessed with so much. Are we complacent? This morning at prayer meeting, we looked at King Asa in Second Chronicles. And he did, he did mighty things for the Lord. Until the end. And then he was unmindful and, and rebelled and rejected. And so the message, this little sub-message here is that we should not forget the Lord during the good times. Most often we, we see traffic and email and we talk to people and texting and all these things. And when someone's got a problem, we pray for them. And we should. But what about when things are going well? I have a son who has straight A's. I pray for him. If things are going well for me, and I can't report a, a sniffle, or a late bill, or a broken car, these sorts of things, still pray for me. Because it's so easy for us to forget the Lord. He treats us so well, and we are unmindful. And so we need prayer for us just as much when things go well as when we're in trouble. But Israel here, God had blessed them so much and they just took it and forgot the blessor. So how does he respond? That happens in verse 19. The Lord saw it and spurned them. He's pushing back. Pushing them away. But then if they forgot him, you wonder if they, if they would notice. But they will notice. 
This is, this is where we live as well. Times are good. Maybe you get a raise. Things are going super. And you forget the Lord. You start doing your own thing. And you forget him. But what if he sort of uh, pushes away a little bit? If he lets you bear the consequences of your own decisions, will you notice it? For sure. It's a wake-up call. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of, the, of his sons and daughters. Some of his parents may unfortunately know what that feels like. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. This is quite a prophetic description of things. And there's some wordplay in here. They made me jealous, I'll make them jealous. Jealousy isn't the same between God and people, as you may know. But him provoking them with a strange nation, this is looking forward. Uh, in a not-so-near view, a kingdom called Assyria is going to come over there and, and wipe out the northern tribes of Israel. This is the first linking of us. But looking far ahead, we're talking about Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11, which we're studying. God is going to use the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And here Moses is prophesying this way back then. Verse 22, let's keep reading. This is what their unfaithfulness really deserves. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, the realm of the dead, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them, and they will be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for the young man and the woman alike, the nursing child and the man of gray hairs. This reads almost like a horror scene. And no one will escape. Man, child, young, old. And all the Lord has to do is stop protecting them the way he has. And this is what happens. Verse 26 is critical. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them off from human memory. That's a passionate statement. But, but it's a comma. <laughs> it's not a period. I would have said this, verse 27, had I not feared the provocation by the enemy. A very interesting turn of phrase attributed to God. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their enemies should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, and it was not the Lord who did this. You tracking? God fears that if he gives them what they really deserve, the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of Israel, 
the Gentiles will take credit for it. We wiped them out. We had the high hand. And that doesn't work. God can't stand that. In fact, Moses used a similar logic at the, at the golden calf. God was going to wipe them out back then. He said, oh, you can't do that because what will people say? And so he's changing what he's going to do with Israel. In verse 28, we're going to see the assessment of this unworthy nation, how pathetic they are and blind. Verse 28, For they are a nation void of counsel, and there's no understanding in them. We would say they're clueless. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? Unless their rock, that's the Lord, had sold them, the enemy, into their hand. Unless he'd been their help. And the Lord had given them up. It's a confusing references. But they couldn't have been successful without the Lord. And they didn't realize it. They couldn't even follow it. Verse 31, for their rock is not as our rock. So for, for their rock, little r, is not like our rock, big r. Their rock is the enemy. For our enemies are by themselves, meaning without God. Verse 32, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and their fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is a poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. He's assessing them as just pathetic and, and helpless and weak. They couldn't even realize that their success and their victories and their prosperity was not their own doing, but because the Lord gave it to them. And so God's speaking in verse 34. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when the foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Who is he talking about? The enemy. He's now changed his mind. He's no longer going to go after, give Israel what they deserve. He's going to defend them against the enemies. 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people. And have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Pretty amazing that he has turned and now will defend his helpless nation. Despite their unfaithfulness. Verse 37, listen to this taunt. Then he will say, where are their gods? Gods of the enemies. Where are their gods, the, the rock, small r, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up to help you. Let them be your protection. Meaning their false gods are impotent. There will be no help. Verse 39 
God's self-declaration, his justification. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I will lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. And I will repay those who hate me. Now, hatred here has a, a covenantal meaning. It means they reject the covenant. They're rejecting the Lord. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. And here's a conclusion. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. God speaking for himself, his own purpose, his own passion. So that's the song of Moses. What difference does it make to Rock Valley Bible Chapel Church? What? Why is how can this be so significant at all? Uh, a poem to a foreign people about foreign people a long time ago in a different covenant. Here's the essence of it. Israel could not enter the land unless they understood how they related to God. They could have no victory, no success, unless they understood that. They were wayward sinners under a covenant. And he was a faithful creator, father God under covenant. You and I, we cannot succeed. We cannot have victory in the Christian life unless we understand how we are related to God. Sinners are related to God. God is angry with sinners. And they must repent to be rightly related with God. They are under condemnation and they need to be born again to new life. This is a fighter verse from a week or two ago. John 3.36 Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. And so they need to repent. They need to, to be saved, to be born again, to enter, to have any part in this, this covenant, this, this good relationship. And so if you're here this morning, and some of this just does not make sense at all, 
because you've never repented of your sins. Why not today? Ask, ask someone here. Let's have a show of hands. If someone was sitting next to you and they had the question, what must I do to be saved? Could you help them? Could you answer? Raise your hand. Look at that, all these people. That's good. If not, then join a small group and figure out how, because it's not too hard. Sinners need to be rightly related with God, not in under wrath. Uh, the rest, if you've, if you've repented of your sins, then you're a repentant sinner. You're a saved sinner. You can't have success or victory without remembering and understanding how you're rightly related to God. And fortunately, very blessedly, we relate to God through the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And for some of us, that sounds like old news. But it is fresh. We need it every single day. That's how we relate to God. We are accepted in the beloved. And that is a fantastic thing. Here, Moses was about to die. This is his swan song. The last thing. Because he's going to die and then they enter the land. And it's a song that he was hoping would be like that Billy Joel song with me. And it would always be with them. Their kids would be humming it. And they would never forget this summary of the relationship that that people have with their God. Even as just despicable, naughty rascals that they were. That God would be faithful to his covenant. Because things, things do go wrong. The context is actually kind of negative in chapter 31, let me just read verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise up and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have with them. It's not a good prognosis. Verse 17, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? When bad things happen, car breaks down, unexpected medical bill arrives, Illness, these things, bridges collapse, accidents happen. I mean, this is, when bad things happen, we tend to say, why me? Why me? And let me just talk adult to adult. Grow up. No. Why not you? These things are happening to everyone all over all the time. Why not you? The better question to ask like these people are saying, is not this happening because the Lord's not among us? Where is the Lord in this situation? What, how is he working? That's the question to really ask. To ask the right question. Get the right answer. Because it's easy for us to grow fat and forgetful and lazy. We're tempted to think that God has left us. 
So do we appreciate the degree to which the Lord is faithful to us? We might not. And this song really emphasizes that in a strong way. A song to remind us, just like it's going to come back in Romans. God is faithful, and that means disciplining us as as well. If we're going to go astray, he'll discipline us. That's, That's a lot different than forsaking as every parent knows. God disciplines every child that he loves. It's actually a demonstration of his love. So this song echoes to us. Despite all the failure and unfaithfulness, God is faithful. As individuals, you and I, will, we will fail again, perhaps this very afternoon. We'll fail God, we'll fail others, and we're, we're tempted to feel... Uh, unloved and forgotten. But this song echoes, you are not forgotten, you are remembered. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us, and he's never leaving us or forsaking us. But like the Israelites, they are forgetful people, and we, we're, we're so insecure. This morning, we all got up, and we were, we're going to church. We opened the closet, and we put something on. But for some of us, maybe most of us, we, we do that, we put our clothes on, we put makeup on, we work our hair, whatever it is, so that we can impress someone in the room or be accepted among some group. It's more true than we probably want to nod our heads to. And yet there's someone, big S, in the room that accepts us just as we are. Not based on what we wear, not based on how successful we are or our budget or how good we are. And it's the God that related to Israel. He was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made covenants with them and with David. And these things are still being lived out. He's being faithful. We're seeing it in the book of Romans. God is faithful to do everything he has promised. He loves every one of us. And this is a transformation formational reality to understand your how you relate to God as a loving Heavenly Father He loves you more than your spouse on your wedding day more than your, your parents when you were born more than the government loves your taxes more than your kids love Nutella I mean, He's just always affectionate to you. And that really helps us uh, process life and process one another. So may there be a song or a verse of some sort that does haunt you, but in a good way. A song that reminds you of these truths, these realities. Just like the song of Moses was for the nation of Israel. And we need it even when things are going good. Father, we're thankful for this, this, this swan song of Moses, how he wanted the best. He was a tender shepherd of Israel, and he wanted them to have success and victory, to at least have it as possible as it could be. And he gave them this song to communicate that reality. Thank you for making us uh, people who respond to song. 
and those who lead us in song, even here weekly. May there be songs that embody healthy truth, that keep us going, not just throughout a workout, but through trials, through difficulties. Thank you for blessing us this day. We, we remember the kids in the retreat and all that's going on there. And pray that that would be life-changing and transformational for everyone involved. So give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.